This week's TribCast is sponsored by Texas Conference for Women. Don't miss the latest episode in the Best of Women Amplified series, featuring Glennon Doyle, author of Untamed Love Warrior and Carry On. Warrior and Target EVP, Laisha Ward, offering wisdom and invaluable advice to help you stop striving for perfection and instead start trusting your voice deep within. Listen now at texasconferenceforwomen.org. And Educate Texas. Educate Texas stimulates creative solutions to key educational challenges throughout the state. Learn more at edtx.org. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tribcast for January 14th, 2022. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News and Politics for the Texas Tribune. And this week I am joined by criminal justice reporter Jolie McCullough. Hello. Hello. And demographics reporter Alexa Ura. Hi. I haven't been on here for a while. I know. Welcome back. (laughs) Uh, All right. Uh, So this week we are going to talk about a couple of things. And first, it's going to be about Governor Greg Abbott's Operation Lone Star, which launched almost a year ago in in March of 2021, in which uh, Abbott basically announced sending the um, National Guard down to the state along or along to the border, um, saying basically the Biden administration wasn't doing its job to secure the border and quote, and, and was quote, inviting illegal immigration. He also said, you know, has taken up a lot of various different enforcement actions, including using state troopers and, and, and local lawmakers to make a immigration arrests on uh, trespassing charges and then handing them over to federal immigration authorities. And of course, is building his wall, um, the, the Texas version of the U.S. wall. This week, or really in recent weeks, it's been a bit of a challenge for Abbott's kind of operations down there. And in recent days, we've had a border sheriff facing an investigation over whether he's confiscating property illegally from undocumented immigrants without beginning forfeiture proceedings. We also had Democratic members of the Texas delegation to Congress um, requesting you know action federal action on this uh, following news reports of poor working and living conditions for the national guard troops along with pay problems and um and some suicides that have been reported among national guard members and then lastly yesterday late yesterday we had abbott's actions being dealt a court blow in travis county court when a a migrants uh, case was thrown out jolie you've particularly been covering the court angle on this. Let's start with the case that happened yesterday. Tell us what happened here and and what it might mean for for Abbott's efforts down there. Sure. Um, So especially when it comes to the trespassing arrests, which are accounting for um, about half of all arrests that are being being, that are taking place right now in Operation Lone Star, where um, if you don't know, essentially migrants who are um, spotted on, you know, private ranches or at a rail, like on rail cars are being arrested, um, for the state crime of trespassing on private property, um, as a way for the governor to try to detain people who he believes have crossed the border illegally. So there have been, uh, a couple thousand men who've been arrested under that charge. 
And what happened yesterday was there was a court hearing in Travis County, which is obviously Austin, not on the border. Um, but these defense lawyers were able to, um, through, through what I would call, you know, quote, create, creative lawyering, <laughs> um, able to get their case heard in front of a much more favorable judge um, than the ones who they've been raising legal issues down at, in the Kinney County, which is where most of these arrests are happening, which is a very conservative, um, conservatively run county. Um, so they were able to get this case in front of a Democratic judge. They were able to have the Travis County District Attorney representing the state, uh, obviously a very progressive um, prosecutor. And then they were able to get their single client. This is just, um, it's only involving one client, one man, an Ecuadorian migrant who was uh, arrested for allegedly trespassing, but his case was dismissed under the ruling that his arrest and his criminal charge was unconstitutional um, and violating the U.S. Constitution Supremacy Clause, which essentially is the clause that states that, you know, federal immigration law, federal policies are, you know, they over, they outweigh any state policies or state law regarding immigration. So, you know, this is one of the, the things that has been interesting about, you know, what Abbott has been doing, because it seemed like he had come up with, you know, a fairly creative runaround from the fact that, you know, the state doesn't actually have jurisdiction to make these arrests. And, and of course, you're, you know, and that was by, as you mentioned, arresting people on trespassing charges on private property, which is, of course, a state charge, but then, then moving it on. And, you know, there, there have been constitutional questions about this ever since it started, largely based around, as your reporting has kind of highlighted, that they tended to only arrest men who were traveling alone. And of course, you can't really decide to only arrest people because of their gender or, or other issues like that. So there have been a lot of kind of equal protection clauses. But it sounds like, or questions here, but it sounds like this one is less even about that, right, than it is about just like that kind of creative jurisdictional runaround yeah, so, didn't pass muster. Right. So that, like you said, there's been kind of challenges left and right. Uh, they're kind of doing, it seems like, you know, defense attorneys are kind of doing the throw everything at the wall, see what sticks. They have, as you say, there are equal protection concerns, um, given that this is you know, the Texas Department of Public Safety has explicitly said we are only arresting men, not family units, not women, not minors. Um, they're only arresting men who are not with a family unit. And also there is, you know, the argument to be made that is made by a lot of defense attorneys that they are only arresting um, people who, quote, like look like migrants, right? Like a lot of people who are um, you know, of Hispanic origin. Um, and so there, there are questions of that, but this one is, yes, it's, it's saying this, you know, the state can't create its own immigration law. And as you said, Abbott had kind of created the system to work around that. Um, and it seems this is its first real test and loss that it did not, it's not enough of a workaround to still violate the constitution. Julie, you mentioned the kind of home field advantage that the the people fighting this had, you know, of course, going to Travis County, a very democratic county that elects the, its judges, a district attorney who, you know, took the side of the migrant in this case. How does that happen? I mean, how does a case, how does a criminal case from down by the border end up getting heard in Travis County? Yeah, I mean, it was, 
it takes some, like I said, the creative lawyering. So basically what is, this is a habeas hearing, which I, I won't go into all the specifics of it, but essentially this type of hearing was, there is state law that essentially says like these types of hearings where you're arguing against like potentially illegal detention or illegal charges are, um, you can hear them in the county where the arrest was made, but you it, there's nothing saying that you specifically have to. Um, so they moved it to see if, uh, if it could get heard in Travis County. Um, it got picked up. And so then the state is represented by the local prosecutor there. Um, they did have in the hearing a, so Kinney County is very small and it has one attorney who, like one prosecutor who prosecutes these what have now become more than 2000 arrests in the span of about six months. Um, so obviously he cannot handle all of these himself. So they've had a lot of um, just attorneys who were assigned seemingly kind of randomly to help out. Um, he, there was an attorney there for representing Kinney County, but he was not allowed to represent the state. He was only representing Kinney County. Um, so unclear how this moves through the Texas attorney general, uh, Ken Paxton has you know, come out this morning on Friday morning saying this is, you know, he's going to appeal this quote, like nonsensical, I believe he said the word nonsensical ruling. Um, but now the question is how, like he wasn't a party in this lawsuit, um, that the ruling has been made and the party who did represent the state, which is the Travis County DA, well, probably I would not expect they would want to appeal the ruling. So it's, it's the next question is like, how does this get challenged? Or is it a situation where because this is a ruling that only applies to actually one person, do they just try to fight when the next lawsuit is filed? Yeah, that was that was going to be my next question is, is, is it too early to know kind of what the broader effect will be in, in terms of how this will affect the interpretation of cases back in Kinney County where this is happening? Yeah, I think it's just, I mean, it is a very interesting ruling in that kind of everyone's eyes have opened up and like everyone's eyebrows is raised now. It's like, oh, what does this mean? Um, we don't know exactly what it means, but I do know defense attorneys have said um, this is precedent. It's setting precedent, whether or not it's not binding precedent, but it is a, an established precedent now that a court has ruled this. And so a lot of defense attorneys are going to start looking at their client list to see where and like where they want to raise these claims for their own clients. Um, and if they can find potentially favorable courts to do the same thing. Um, and then we'll see exactly like how the state, how uh, Ken Paxton, how maybe Kinney County wants to try to intervene. Is the idea, do these get appealed through the state courts? Well, there is an appeal of judge, some sort. So you would, I mean, if there was an appeal, the typical appellate process, because it's a state district court, would be through, you know, like the state court of appeals and then up to the Texas Supreme Court, because this was a civil, a civil hearing. Yeah, I think, I think it's just interesting, you know, as someone who's on the voting rights part of this, and as we have also seen the challenges to some other creative work the state has taken on through the abortion law. I mean, it's, it's weird because the court system is supposed to serve as this sort of balance, right, in terms of the branches of government. And, and instead, the, the state on multiple fronts actually ends up kind of finding a little bit of solace and reprieve in the courts. You know, in this case, it'll ultimately reach a Republican dominated court, state court, in, in the case of the state Supreme Court, the abortion law, you know, will have to go through the Fifth Circuit, which is, 
incredibly conservative and in, in some ways in favor of some of the policies the state or the court isn't in favor but seems to favor some of the arguments the court often makes the state often makes before it and then even on the voting and redistricting parts of it you have these uh three panel these three judge panel that has two uh republican appointees on it and so it seems like the this idea of the court serving as kind of a balance of a check on power the it's interesting how the state continues to sort of find a little bit of reprieve um, through the court system, which is which is when it's usually used it to sort of challenge things. Um, well, and I think that's what's so unique about this case is that these defense attorneys who are representing the the migrant, this Ecuadorian migrant, kind of seemingly use that knowledge, right? Like they took this to Travis County. I mean, I can't speak for them, but they took this to Travis County. Um, seemingly like we can all guess why. <laughs> um, and they had the progressive prosecutor who sided with them. So like, yes, if it gets to the Texas Supreme Court, we would expect that that is a, you know, it's a Republican court, but it's like the question of how does it even get there now? Because who would who who has the right to appeal? And like if Paxton is trying to intervene, I think it's going to take some not saying they can't. Obviously, creative lawyering happens on every side, but it will take some more gamemanship, I think, to try to figure out how to intervene in this aside from the like typical procedures. Yeah, well, and Alexa, you talk about viewing this from watching voting issues portray, you know, one of the few cases where the state's Republican leadership has been rebuked by a high court that's Republican was by the Court of Criminal Appeals. Um, I think earlier this month, maybe last month, when when the Court of Criminal Appeals found that Paxton could not, without the permission of local district attorneys, prosecute voting uh, allegations. And, you know, this we were talking about different statutes here, but this now here is another situation where the, the attorney general's office is limited as to when they can come in and take action in a case, you know, without the permission of local prosecutors. And we'll see, you know, how that all kind of plays into this as well. Of course, if they're going to the Supreme Court, that's a different group of judges and they might have different opinions on this, but I don't know. I mean, you know, as someone who just kind of watches Texas government, Texas politics lately, it really feels like the courts both the federal and the state courts have been sort of an instrument of chaos almost and in, in the way like laws are interpreted and handled. You know, we've we've seen this around the the coronavirus stuff too, where schools and you know mask orders and things like that are being overturned by the Supreme Court, but the local district courts and, and conservative, I mean in liberal counties are are stepping in and basically making issuing rulings just as quickly as they can be kind of batted down at the high courts. I mean, there's just so much of a disconnect between, particularly in the big cities where a lot of these high profile cases are originating between the judges down there and the statewide elected Republican judges at the top and the statewide elected Republican officials who are in many times trying to impose their will on kind of the local governments and how these processes are being done where it's like you kind of are almost left with your head spinning about what is the actual law in Texas these days. They're, they're providing less clarity than, than more at this point, it seems like. I mean, it seems like, yeah, like they're being used, like you said, kind of to like chaos makers. It seems like they're used more 
as tools by the people who are trying to push out certain agendas or policies. Like it's, it's let, I mean, on both sides, obviously, as we can see from this hearing yesterday, um, less of like a, you know, just separate branch that's like the, yeah, keeping of like the keeping balances, but instead just being used as political tools. Does, does the chaos ultimately benefit the state though? I mean, that's probably a different answer depending on the issue that we're talking about. But I, it's, it's one of those things that's hard to tell in the like rush of decisions. Does, does it end up benefiting the state and more broadly the things that they are pushing for? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that frustrates me as just a person that doesn't particularly like chaos is that it feels like it benefits everyone politically, right? It benefits the state when when Greg Abbott and, you know, insert elected official from Travis County, uh, whoever we want to put in, in that particular situation, are fighting and going at each other, both sides are getting what they want from, from their supporters, right? And both sides are kind of looking good among the electric, electorate that's electing them. And, you know, I think that is kind of starting to kind of push this you know and I, and I think people would say you know people on both sides would really say like you know that's not why they're doing this they're doing this because they're doing what what they believe is to be right but I think you cannot kind of discount the the political element on both sides and how that is really contributing to the the instability there well and even beyond like the courts the whole is if you want to get to the Austin versus the state thing I would argue like a lot of you know even Democrats in other parts of the state it they get very frustrated because Austin will come up with a policy that obviously automatically gets the attention of the governor and then before we know it there's a state law <laughs> um exactly. so exactly yeah. All right. Well, you know, I want to, we're going to get into a little bit more of local versus state fights here in a minute, but let's uh, take a pause to listen to our sponsors. The Texas State University System. The Texas State University System is Texas's first university system with seven institutions spanning 700 miles. Visit tsus.edu for more. And Texas Farm Bureau. Looking for ag information and resources? Visit Texas Farm Bureau's Small Farm and Ranch Resource page at txfb.us slash smallfarm. Okay, so, you know, speaking of local and statewide fights, we've had a, some issues arising in the voting realm as we approach uh, the, the, the March 2nd primary in Texas. Alexa, you've been reporting on this about how the new state law that added voting restrictions passed uh, in 2021 has caused a bunch of uh, mail-in ballot applications to be rejected at the county level. Walk us through what's happening here. So essentially, as part of that, that massive voting bill that Texas Republicans passed last year, they added these new ID requirements for people who are voting by mail, which in Texas we know is a pretty limited universe. Um, it's, we don't offer it as widely as many other states do. But essentially, you have to now include your driver's license or state ID number. And if you don't have that, then you have to include your social security number. And if you don't have either, then you check off a box that says you don't have either. Seems simple on its face, right? But the issue is that not everybody has those numbers attached to their voter file, which is what these applications are verified against. And, and it's a new 
can you step in the process before people can get approved to get their mail-in ballots that they fill out at home and then return to the counties to, to be able to vote by mail without having to go to a polling place? And what we found is that this process has actually so far led to hundreds of rejections and hundreds of rejections in just a few counties, right? Sure, there's some of the state's biggest counties. One of the counties we talked to was Harris County, where uh, 208 applications, roughly 16% of the total they've received so far, had been rejected based on these new rules. Uh, you know, we are a month away from the deadline for all of these applications to come in. We are pretty far still from when that sort of deluge of applications will come in, as most people uh, can imagine. Folks tend to wait close to the deadline. Uh, reporters included. I won't, I'm, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not criticizing those folks. But you know, I, I think I think it, it's it's a pretty alarming number. If in just three counties with a month to go, we are seeing hundreds of applications being rejected, uh, it's it's a pretty alarming number, and and it sort of raises concerns about what these numbers will look like as we get closer to this deadline. Um, and you know, I think the the broader thing though is that we often these these voting laws and changes are passed, and there is a lot of a lot of fighting in the lead up to them passing and a lot of warnings about the effects that they could have on individual voters. Usually, sometimes those things are addressed, sometimes they're not. In this case, they were supposedly trying to address them. And in the end, we're seeing a pretty direct result and, and fallout from the changes that Republicans passed last year. Was this on the list of things, you know, there are of course many people raising many concerns about the bill that, that eventually passed in in one of the myriad special sessions of last year. Was this among the concerns that people had that something like this might happen? In it other was. words, should, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, it, it absolutely was. It, and, and lawmakers were warned about these potential issues over and over again. I mean, we had several legislative sessions and so that we had several hearings at which they even heard about this. And, and they did make changes to it. Originally, the way the law was written is that the voter had to include the same number that they had included when they first registered to vote, which in some cases could have been, you know, 20 years ago. And the idea of the person remembering the same number uh, was, was not very realistic. Also, the requirements for registering to vote have changed over time. And so there are particularly older people who might have registered decades ago who had different requirements to register. So, the, the, you know, the, I think the, the, voter the voter rolls are not a perfect document, right? I mean, to start off with, you have to register on paper and people have to enter the information by hand. So they are far from perfect. But the state was that lawmakers were specifically warned about this. In fact, they were told at the time that there were 2 million registered voters who lacked one of these two numbers in their voter file. And so immediately you have this large universe. Obviously, not all of those folks would probably uh, qualify to vote by mail because our roles are pretty strict, but that's a pretty big universe. We got some updated numbers from the Secretary of State's office yesterday, and they said that that number is about 702,000 now. But if you look at just the people who don't have a driver's license on file, which is that first number the state actually asks you to put down, it's almost half a million registered voters. And so there, there's just sort of a fundamental mismatch between the numbers voters are being asked to put on these applications and the order in which they're being asked to put in these applications and the fact that the state doesn't actually have all of the information on hand 
to verify to verify these applications without any sort of issues and sort of the increasing rejection rates that we're seeing. Sure, and you know, I think it, it's, it bears noting that this is of course happening. You know, the people who tend to uh, apply for a mail-in ballot and who qualify for a mail-in ballot are the folks who are more medically vulnerable, right? Either because of their age or because of possibly a disability or something that might require it. Of course, also people who are traveling out of the county during the voting period, but, um, and this is, you know, a situation where we're gonna see a lot of, we're seeing a lot of rejections we're also seeing a record number, you know, shattered number of cases for, for uh, coronavirus. We're seeing uh, getting back up to, you know, previous peaks and hospitalizations and everything like that. You know, it's a situation where people who, you know, are, are applying to vote by mail are doing so for a reason and might be reluctant to go to the polls due to the personal risk that they might be, you know, setting up for themselves in that way. Um, yeah, and, and I think I think that you know, as we mentioned, this was foreseen. And the thing is that this is now state law, not just for this election, but for the November general too, right? The legislature isn't expected to come back until 2023. So it's you know the the gap between legislative sessions is so wide that when you create a law that has such an immediate and alarming effect. It's going to be a while before they can even actually address this, and the mean and in the meantime, you have voters who are having to figure out what they have to put down, possibly doing extra work to try to figure out what number is on their voter registration file because they probably might not remember, or they don't want to risk putting the wrong number down and having their ballot, their application rejected, um, and and it's you know. There's always the voters that you were the, the voters that I worry about are the people who don't read the Tribune, the people who don't have access to internet to get onto that online ballot tracker to fix their to fix that issue with their mail-in ballot. The people who don't have time to submit an application twice because they thought they had done everything correctly and because of an issue outside of their control, they were rejected, right? And and I think that it's those sort of little nuances that are a bit harder to measure but we at least have some concrete numbers that the fallout from this bill, from this new law, at least in this specific regard, is going to affect hundreds of Texans and already has. Do you, what has been, if anything, and I might be behind here, like the reaction from like Republican lawmakers, right? Because is this, like, is this something that's concerning for them as well? Like how, I know you said like, yeah, it takes another legislative session to kind of tweak anything, but is this something they seem like, oh, we need to change this? Or is what is the reaction that you're hearing? I don't think we've seen any public reaction from folks so far. Um, I, I think that when there were times when, when these related issues came up during these hearings, and very often the people raising the issues, there wasn't any sort of conversation about it. You know, I remember there was at least one of the marathon hearings when uh, an election official, a county election official brought this up to them and there were no questions asked about it. You know, the, I think the, the law might have been, a, it might have been written differently at that point because we went through sort of slightly different versions throughout the session. But the, the issue, there, was, there wasn't always sort of a, an expansive discussion on it during session. And I wouldn't be surprised if, if people would based on sort of how we've seen Republicans react to what's actually in the law, I wouldn't be surprised if, if there is some expressions of surprise again that this is, this is happening, right? I mean, it's a massive law 
And, and it seems like in, in the aftermath of it being passed or in the aftermath of it failing in between sessions, there seemed to always not be a full grasp of the effect it could have on voters. Well, yeah, and you know, this is I'm, uh, not to get too, you know, schoolhouse rock civic-y again, but you know, this is, we see this during the legislative session, particularly in controversial bills, right? Where you'll see a lot of people show up to testify um, a lot of people who are, you know, often the opposite party of the the, the leaders who are going to vote this bill out, and they are raising these concerns. They're they're causing, uh, uh, you know, trying to warn about certain things, and and they will often fall on deaf ears, you know, as people are trying to get through marathon ten hour hearings, and the hearing becomes less of an attempt to, you know, anticipate what the effects of the law will be, and more of a kind of political show. And, and that, uh, that is how you end up getting problems with that. It's, it's depressing. Also depressing is the, uh, the way that the Texas Secretary of State and the Travis County uh, clerk's office seem to get into a, a Twitter fight over this, this. Uh, in, the, in, the, um, in the hours after your story posted, Alexa, where again, you know, not a lot of working towards solutions and a lot more of kind of scoring points and performing as opponents in an effort that should be a collaborative and non-controversial uh, procedure, you know, counting, you know, getting people who are eligible registered to vote and, and able to do it safely and conveniently and things like that. So, yeah, I don't, I don't think very. I don't think. <laughs> well, I, you know, <laughs> let's all just do a collective sigh. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I just, you know, I don't think it's encouraging if you're a voter who is trying to navigate the system to see that the people responsible for helping you navigate it. I mean, it just doesn't, it just doesn't seem very encouraging to an individual voter. And I think, you know, if you watch those public hearings, those are not encouraging to individual people, right? The, the, I, and I think that at the end of the day, when you're talking about something like voting, right, the most sort of fundamental right that, that most people in office sort of hail as this like sacred thing uh, for folks that needs to be safeguarded, I, you know, I think it's important that if you are going to make changes to the process of voting, those need to be done very, very precisely so that people don't get caught up in these issues that are of the state's making. And I think in this case, the warnings that were ignored are now sort of playing out in, in ways that will that may continue to grow between now and the election. Indeed. Okay, well, I think that's about all the time we have for today. Thank you to our producer, Justin. Thank you to Alexa and Jolie. Thank you to uh, Pongo, Cowboy, and Mowgli, our dogs, for staying silent as we recorded this in our house. And thank you to our sponsors, the Texas Conference for Women, Educate Texas, the Texas State University System, and the Texas Farm Bureau. Talk to you next week. Do I have to talk to you? Do I have to talk to you?